This podcast includes information provided by the issuer and does not express the views of the interviewer. This podcast may also include forward-looking statements by the issuer that involve certain risks and uncertainties to its business. Because forward-looking statements are subject to risks and uncertainties, the issuer's actual results could differ from those indicated in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And you're listening to episode 86. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rcraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message. For this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Gary Mishuris, Managing Partner and Chief Investment Officer at Silver Ring Value Partners. Gary and I met on LinkedIn, and after doing some research on Silver Ring and his publication, BehavioralValueInvestor.com, I wanted to learn more about his investing insights, process, and strategy. The goal for the interview is to learn more about Gary's research process as well as a discussion of behavioral biases that occur to investors and how to overcome them. Thank you again for tuning in to episode 86, and please enjoy my interview with Gary Mishuris from Silver Ring Value Partners. But first, a word from our sponsor. To my loyal listeners, subscribers, and fans, Robert Kraft here, your host on the Planet Microcap podcast. The 2019 investor conference season is upon us. Where are you going this year? I'd like to take a second to invite you to join me and maybe a few of the guests you've heard on this podcast to our annual Microcap Investor Conference, the Planet Microcap Showcase, April 30th to May 2nd, 2019 at Bally's Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas. The Planet Microcap Showcase will be two and a half days of company presentations, networking opportunities, an educational workshop, and you will get to meet privately in one-on-one meetings with management of well-known emerging growth private and publicly traded microcap companies. We are back with new surprises and programming that you will not want to miss. So join us for the Planet Microcap Showcase, April 30 to May 2nd, 2019 at Bally's Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas. For more information and register to attend, please visit www.planetmicrocapshowcase.com. See you in Vegas. For this episode of the Planet Microcap Podcast, I would like to welcome Gary Mishuris, Managing Partner and Chief Investment Officer at Silver Ring Value Partners. Gary, welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. It's great to have you on, and uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, come on here and uh, and thank you for uh, the uh, the the LinkedIn request and and for us able to connect that way. Absolutely, we're really glad we connected. Same here. All right, so uh, let's get started here. You know what what is your background, and then how did you get your start investing and in the world of finance? Sure. So you know I was studying computer science and economics at MIT during the tech bubble, which was about twenty years ago. And, you know, I was lucky in a way that probably is going to sound counterintuitive, which is I was I thought I was smart. I was studying these subjects. So I bought a tech stock and, you know, all the tech stocks were supposed to just go up. You know, there was it was supposed to be a one way market. No sure way to make money for a poor college kid working two jobs. And luckily for me, I picked the one tech stock in 1999 that was not going up. It actually went down, which is shocking. Uh, you know, talk about skill in the wrong kind of way. And just around that time, uh, Warren Buffett happened to come and speak on campus at Sloan, which is the business school at MIT. And you know, I, I didn't know much about him. I just knew he was this rich billionaire investor. But I figured, hey, no, I'll go and I'll listen to him talk. So I went, and you know, it just kind of, you know, was kind of took right away. You had this guy talking about long term intrinsic value. A competitive advantage, thinking about predictable economics, which made me realize that everything that I thought I was doing that was in my mind investing really wasn't, and it was really speculating. So I think that was very fortunate for me because had I bought a stock 
know, like a tech stack based on my non-existent process at the time and it had done well, I think I would have gotten the wrong lessons from that and might not have never might have never become a value investor. But be it as it may, I think that encounter with Buffett really made me want to learn more and more about value investing. And I was fortunate I started reading a lot about it and then I was able to get a job straight out of uh, uh, undergrad at Fidelity in Equity Research where I had a terrific mentor. It's a gentleman by the name of Joel Tillinghast who manages a low price stock fund who's just a terrific investor. He actually recently wrote a book that I highly recommend uh, uh, as well. And I think working for my first three years under him really helped me become a better investor. Mm-hmm. So, so you know, one thing I have to ask is uh, most people who I interview on this podcast, they their first experience with Warren Buffett is uh, you know reading, you know his uh, letters, uh, his his uh, annual letters, or you know reading something that he's written or about him, you know. But you got the you had the good fortune that you know you just so happen to be at you know just so happen to be at MIT and uh, and and he came to speak. I mean, what what was that like? That must have been incredible. Well, it was a uh, uh, standing room only audience, so that was uh, you know my first sign that he was a pretty popular guy. But you also <laughs> have to remember this was the tech bubble, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, you know, people were saying around that time he lost his touch, he doesn't get it anymore, he you know doesn't understand tech. That it's a new new paradigm, you know, it's EV per eyeball or something like that, as opposed to the old traditional valuation metrics. So his quote unquote stock was flying quite low at that time. So even even despite that, I think there was quite a bit of demand and it was just, he has a manner about him that he makes the complex simple, mm-hmm. which I think is a hallmark of a great investor. And he just really ha- gave me this aha moment that I might have still gotten had I been reading what he wrote, but it's, I felt like it was much more powerful in person. Mm-hmm. That's that's really cool. Um, so so then from from your your experience of fidelity to where you're at now, you know what? Can you fill that gap there? You know what what happened between from when you left there and then and then when did you start uh, at Silver Ring Value Partners? Sure, uh, sure. So I you know I was fortunate that again I spent the first three years of my career with Joel because you know it's one thing to have this theory of oh you have intrinsic value and you know. You have, you know, margin of safety and all these concepts, and they're good concepts, right? But uh, this is not a theoretical endeavor. You actually have to go out and apply them. And there is nothing like having a mentor who's a master investor who can actually give you feedback. And I remember actually, and Joel is not a very talkative person. So anyone who's met him would probably know he's a bit quirky in a good way, but very, you know, he's not a, he's an introvert. He's not out there. Mm-hmm giving lectures to people who work with him. Mm-hmm. However, you know, I remember one time, you know, I, I got a note that was, I had a cube at the time, not far from his office, and I got a note from Joel, and it was my stock recommendation. So, you know, Fidelity, as an analyst, you ranked stocks. So you rated them one for a strong buy, two for a buy, three for a hold, four for a sell, five strong sell. And he wrote down all my stock tickers that I was covering at the time. I was covering a small cap industry or two. So, and he put my readings in one column and he uh, put my uh, the return equity in the next column. And immediately it was obvious to me that I had this inverse relationship, that I was recommending these cheap stocks that, that were quite low in ROE. You know, and if you think of ROE, you can maybe think of it as a first cut for business quality. And then I was avoiding all these high ROE companies that were good, much better businesses, but they were expensive. And I remember running into Joel's office and saying, but Joel, we're value investors. It's not about just the quality of the business. It's all it's about, you know, the price to value relationship. And and he kind of shrugged his shoulders and went back to reading his 10K. So, you know, or whatever he was reading. So I think that was very formative to me because I think it kind of when I started, I was in very much of a Ben Graham mode mm. of, you know, tangible value. You know, you can measure it, you know, P, low PE or low price to book. It was less low price to book. It was more low PE, low uh, pre, price to free cash flow. Mm-hmm. If it's not cheap, I don't want it. And I think that experience, as well as a number of other experiences over time, which started to make me appreciate quality to a far greater extent. So anyway, spent three years at Fidelity. Um, I left after three years for the simple reason I didn't get promoted. 
So, uh, you know, very, very straightforward. Uh, and back then, at Fidelity, you needed to have 15, so one five portfolio managers who are going to say, yes, this person, you know, should get promoted to the next level. Wow. And most portfolio managers at Fidelity, unlike Joel, and maybe two or three others, were really not value investors. They were, you know, focused on the next 12 months, relative earnings, you know, who's going to beat the quarter. They were paid annual bonuses. And there was a limited market within Fidelity at the time for a long-term value investing approach. And I had a number of supporters. Uh, Will Danoff was one who managed the Contra Fund. Joel was another, but not quite 15. <laughs> and of course, at the time, it was devastated, right? And it was funny because the, on the Thursday before the decision, I, uh, they used to give out every six months awards to analysts. Mm. And I got a creative research award for a piece I did on the industry. And I'm like, wow, I appreciate my work. You know, maybe <laughs> I'll get promoted. And then I come in on Monday, uh, and, you know, the director of research, you know, and the head of investments has a serious expression. I'm like, that doesn't seem good. <laughs> you know, they're not smiling. Um, so, you know, I, it, was, it wasn't one of those things where you were fired. You know, I had plenty of time. So, you know, a number of people, including Joel and Will, uh, well, references. So I did not have trouble finding a job. But it was certainly kind of at the, moment, at the point in time it felt, you know, it sucked. That's right. a technical term. However, in hindsight... You know, I think it forced me, well, one is it allowed me to continue on the value investing path, whereas had I stayed at Fidelity and had to serve 50 portfolio managers where 45 or more of them are not value investors, I think it would have made me a worse investor or at least a more conventional, uh, shorter term investor. And two is I think it forced me, it made me kind of angry and, and the way I handled that anger is I tried to get better. I, I started reading even more, started trying to become an even better investor. And trust me, at that time, there was plenty of room for improvement. <laughs> you know, so it's not that I've mastered things after three years. Um, you, know, I, you know, I won't go year by year to sp uh, spare you the gory details, but I ended up with a place called Evergreen Investments. They were, it was owned by Wachovia, which was a bank, which was not that. That wasn't necessarily a good thing, but there was a gentleman there who was given the mandate to build an intrinsic value team. And I had a few different options. Uh, I had a few, uh, three offers at the time. And what appealed to me about the situation is that it was going to be a cohesive team where intrinsic value was already accepted as the established standard. So you don't have yeah. to go in and try to convince a portfolio manager that, oh, well, we shouldn't look at technical charts. We should be looking at the price-to-value relationship. That was already going to be the norm, and mm -hmm. now you're going to be discussing, like, how do you actually do it? Where do you look for ideas? You know, what is the value of this business or something like that? Regardless, did well there, got promoted to senior analyst and then a junior co-portfolio manager on the uh, large cap value strategy, which was a very interesting experience because up until that time, I always thought of terms like overweight and underweight as pertaining more to my waistline than to how to, uh, <laughs> in my case, unfortunately, more, more over than under, you know, than to how to position a portfolio. But I quickly learned that, you know, the big marketing-driven firm, the business of investing very frequently has a big pool and sometimes the pool in a very different direction than kind of the, you know, the profession of investing. Right. Anyway, um, Wachovia, the parent company, essentially went out of business in the financial crisis that followed. Uh, Wells Fargo took us over. And, uh, you know, we lost a number of people on the team. The team got split in half. And then our old chief investment officer ended up as the chief investment officer at Manulife Asset Management. And he lifted out our half of the team. And, you know, after having kind of endured three years as the co-portfolio manager in the large cap value strategy, I, I didn't really want to manage another, like, conventional strategy. It was just too painful to have these arguments of, well, should we own any energy stocks with oil at 200 and we can't find any values. Well, the benchmark has this weight, so therefore, like, it's just not a fun way to spend your time. So when we were talking about the lift out, he asked, you know, he sent me, he actually sent me this really detailed spreadsheet with my various paths, my compensation could take the different scenario. I said, listen, Chris, that's all great. I trust you, you know, otherwise I wouldn't be coming. Um, let's talk instead about launching a concentrated uh, strategy where basically, I'm going to manage money the same way that I manage my family money. Now, at that point, I've been managing my family money for seven or eight years, and I never thought there should be a big gap, right? Like, mm -hmm. if you're, why would you manage someone's money vastly differently than how you would manage, you know, your own family's money? Assuming it's for similar objectives, meaning it's, you're not managing a municipal bond fund or something like that. That might be a different, but if you're 
managing money for the long term. There shouldn't be a big difference, if any. Regardless, so he agreed, and so I joined Manulife. Uh, you know, I bo was both a senior analyst, and I was able to launch this uh, focused value strategy, as we called it. I got, I would say, 80, 85 percent of what I wanted. Mm -hmm. uh, it was, it was a bit of a sales job with a head of marketing, and uh, you know, I remember I wanted it to be 10 to 20 investments, as an example. And he, you know, in this meeting, said, "Well, that's too few." I said, "Well, how do you think about that being too few? Like, what? From I always like to think about." things from first principles, right? And he had, of course, no idea why that was too few. He just didn't know of any other strategies. There were 10 to 20 stocks. So to him, it seemed, seemed unconventional, and therefore it was too few. So we kind of bargained a little bit, like in the Turkish bazaar, I said, you know, how about we had five here? He said, well, <laughs> how about we had 20? And we met at 20 to 30, so, you know, I wanted 10 to 20, he wanted 20, uh, 30 plus. 20 to 30 was a decent compromise. I could still do 20, and that would have been fine. So I would say I got 80, 85% of what I wanted, and then, you know, fast forward a few years, three years later, you know, the strategy hit three-year numbers, which, by the way, I think the industry does itself and our clients terrible disservice, you know, marketing funds based on these three-year numbers, which statistically don't mean very much, you know. I, I'm not that good at math, but even I know that. And yet, you know. Don't sell yourself short, okay, uh, MIT grad. Um, you're, I'm sure you're very good at numbers. <laughs> uh, well, I, I'm, I've actually met the people who are good, so I know where I stand in the pecking order of mathematical ability. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> so, you know, but the three, at the three-year mark, the salespeople said the numbers are great. we got to go and build a business and gather assets. And um, so I was kind of at a crossroads. Uh, my wife is a doctor, mm -hmm. and we had... Twin, uh, so we have three kids now. We, our twins were two at the time, and we told them that mama helps people, which is how we explain what she did. And uh, my son, Ben, started walking her out the door saying, have a good day at work, mama, helping people. And then, you know, a couple of weeks later, he, would, he started doing the same thing with me. He started saying, have a good day at work, papa, helping people. So it made me kind of like really question, like, what am I doing? Right? Let's say I go and we gather a whole bunch of assets. You know, the firm makes a lot of money great. You know, I'll make a, a good amount of money. Fine. But at that point, I was financially comfortable where, you know, we could drive whatever car we wanted, but we had a Toyota and that was not going to change. But we liked a Toyota. It was fine. You know, we had a decent house that we, that, that was, you know, moderate house that fit our needs. We weren't looking for anything, change in lifestyle. So I was thinking to myself, like, why am I going to do things that might not be exactly what I want if I have the ability to go and try to do something where I could go back to, to my son, Ben, and say, here's what I'm doing to help people. So that was really the genesis of how I decided to start Silvering Value Partners. And I went to my you know, chief investment officer and said, look, you know, it was one of those, it's not you, it's me. You know, and it really was. You know, they've been great. He's been gracious. The comp was great. It was nothing about that. It was more, I've done this for 15 years at that point. I really felt that I was both ready and I really wanted to do something different where I could really start with a blank sheet of paper and, you know, do things without, not compromise 80-20, but try to do 100% the way I think it should be done. So left on very good terms. He actually invested in the partnership, as did a few of my coworkers. And that was 2016, and here we are. Nice. So what is, what is uh, before I get into the, the investment philosophy, you know, what would you say then is the mission of Silver Ring Value Partners? I would say, you know, the, my goal is to use what I do to have people and institutions achieve their financial objection, uh, objectives better than they could otherwise. So, again, my wife's a doctor. There's no way I can help people in a way that's as directly impactful as that. But, look, I grew up poor. We were immigrants to this country. Uh, I grew up without a father most of my life, and I saw my mom, you know, put her first dollars of savings into mutual funds. Uh, and she was smart, but it was very hard to pick one because there was all this marketing and this and that. And most mutual funds didn't do that well. And so, for someone like my mom who started saving late because she only came to this country when she was 40, so she didn't have that first 15, 20 years of savings and compounding, you know, the performance of that mutual fund. Is really was really going to impact when she would be able to retire. So to right. me, it was it was really it wasn't some theoretical thing where you go and you you know find these clients and you know, make as much money off of them as possible. It's yeah, you should make money if you add value, but only if you add value. 
and also try to have do it in a way that's a real partnership and have hopefully help them advance their goals and make their lives better. So combination of capitalism, but capitalism where both parties win as opposed to this kind of whatever the market bears goes kind of thing. Gotcha. So then now now to the investment philosophy. Uh, you know, on your website you have uh, you have five points to it. You know, what are they and why are you focusing on these factors? Sure. So I think, you know, you know, the intrinsic value is probably pretty non-controversial. And, you know, I, maybe a quick, you know, kind of story. I mean, I mentioned Warren Buffett and, uh, you know, kind of the first time I met him. So when I was at Fidelity, I was very fortunate to, you know, be able to go to Berkshire Hathaway meetings. And be, back in the day, Alice Schroeder, who was the Morgan Stanley analyst who wrote the, one of the books on Buffett, Snowball, she would do this dinner for clients where, you know, 100, 200, you know, clients could come and meet Buff, have a dinner with Buffett and he would answer questions. So I asked him, you know, my first year out, out there, you know, about 18 years ago, I, I said, well, how do you how do you look at a company for investment? Like, what do you do? And it really kind of stuck in my mind because what he said was, well, first I look at five, 10 years and I ask myself this question of, can I approximately estimate the key economic characteristics of this business? And if the answer is no, uh, then I pass. And if the answer is yes, then I proceed to try to approximately estimate an intrinsic value range, and then I want a big margin of safety. So anyway, th that was a segue into the first you know, component is you know, intrinsic value. Uh, it's, the idea there is that you, know, you buy partial ownership pieces of a business. You're not just trading pieces of paper who derive their value from what the next person is willing to pay for them in the market tomorrow or the next day. The second, you know, kind of tenet is margin of safety. You know, intrinsic value, first of all, it's uncertain. You know, so that's why it's a range. Second of all, it changes. You, uh, businesses can, you know, evolve. You know, developments can happen that can make a business more or less valuable. And so the idea of a margin of safety is you want to have a price-to-value gap sufficient large that if you're wrong you still do okay and to me my understanding of, of margin of safety really evolved to be a combination of that price to value gap and the quality of the underlying business and the reason for that is I've made such big mistakes in estimating intrinsic value that when I look back a I'm embarrassed but B it made me realize that for some of the lower quality businesses it's easy to fool yourself into thinking you can easily value them and, you know, be overly precise in your, you know, quantification of that value. They're so unpredictable that a lot of times, you know, the value is going to end up being so different from what you thought that almost no amount of, you know, margin of safety from the price can overcome that. Mm -hmm. um, the third tenet is a long-term time horizon. And I think, you know, look, I worked at large investment firms for th 15 years prior to striking out on my own. And, I mean, the business pressure is real. Incentive pressure is real. I mean, think about it this way. Like, if you come to a portfolio manager who works for, you know, one of these shops and you say, here's a proposition for you. How about you're going to get a great three-year annualized rate of return on investment? Let's say 20%, something really attractive. Um, but, but the first two years have to be terrible. Like that's the, that's that's the condition in which you get this great three-year return. A lot of them would say no, we can't, because you know, well, some say, well, why don't I just wait for end of year two and buy it then? Well, that's a separate conversation. But the reason they can't is they'll not make their bonus, they will get fired, their clients will fire them because mm -hmm. they haven't educated their clients or they haven't selected the kind of clients that can look through that first two years. So there's a real Time horizon arbitrage in the market, but it only is there if you actually have the staying power yourself, and that which means that your clients need to have a very long duration of capital uh, to actually weather that, you know, that period of time when the performance might or might not be there. So I think the long-term time horizon is very important because at the end of the day, I'm not trying to help people achieve a six-month outcome or a 12-month outcome or even a three-year outcome. You know, my hope is to help people achieve you know, 10, 5, 10, and beyond year outcomes. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the fourth point is, look, I'm an MIT guy by training. I was an engineer. And I think in terms of systems and the repeatable processes. So, I mean, there are investors out there that, you know, have a lot of flair and they can just kind of pick stocks out of thin air and they have a good gut feel. 
I don't. I don't have a gut feel. I try to create replicable processes. So to me, being rational and disciplined is really important because what I'm trying to do is create a system of repeatable steps that can then use to make decisions over and over again. And of course, over time, the goal is to refine those and make them better. But at any given time, whatever my best state-of-the-art process is, I'm going to stick to that 100% of the time. Mm-hmm. And then finally, a concentrated portfolio, I think there's a limit to that. You know, I, I've met some people who you know, they have 40% or 50% of their portfolio in one stock. You know, they've read the Buffett partnership letters and they say, well, Buffett had 50% American Express during the salad oil scandal days, so I'm going to do that too. That's not me. I think that's there's a lot of hubris in that. And I've just been wrong so many times in my career that I'm not going to put half of my capital. Um, no. But by the way, a lot of times the people who do it, they're kind of talented analysts who after three to five years started their own you know, firm or got a fund to manage. And they haven't been humbled yet. I've had the benefit of investing through two downturns, the 01, 02, 03 and the financial crisis. And I know how even the best conceived investment theses might play out differently than you can imagine. So for me, a concentrated portfolio is you know 10 to 20 investments. And the idea is that I can be wrong on any one decision, not just any one investment thesis, but any one decision which might span across several investment the- uh, theses and still have the rest of the portfolio be able to overcome any potential loss within a year. So in practice, means I really structure it in a way that I can't lose or I shouldn't be able to lose more than 10% on any one decision because if you lose 10%, 90 can go to 100 within a year, assuming you're on average right on the rest of the portfolio. Mm -hmm. But if I lose 20%, for 80 to go to 100, that's a 25% rate of return in in a year, and I'm just not that good. Gotcha. So I wanted to follow up on the first two points real quick and and on your point of intrinsic value and then also on uh, margin of safety. So first part, for intrinsic value, you know, and, and again, you know, this is a microcap podcast. We're looking at uh, companies five hundred million in market cap or less. You know, mm-hmm. some some don't have historical revenues. Some may have just you know uh, uh, had their first revenues uh, maybe in the last year or, or even just turned a profit for the first time. You know, so for for those types of companies, how do you calculate intrinsic value? And then also conversely. You know, um, maybe a little bit more about how you would calculate that margin of safety for these "quote unquote" riskier businesses, only because they don't have that same histo- those same historical uh, uh, financials. So I think you know, I guess the way I would approach it and the way I do approach it because I do invest in microcap. So the mm-hmm. be- the be- beauty of being on your own is that I try I don't have to focus on any superficial metrics, and I can focus on what matters, which is the business and the price and the people and the balance sheets and so forth. Um, so my market cap range is well from uh, well under uh, 100 million to well over 100 billion in terms of what's currently in the portfolio. So wow. I, it, I, I, I don't discriminate uh, on our market cap. Isn't that nice? Uh, <laughs> it, it is. It is. And that was part of the way one of the bones of contention is that you know to be managing a meaningful fund that was meaningful for a large company, it needed mm-hmm. to be three to five billion or bigger. And at that point, you can't logically spend time on a two, three hundred million market cap, even if it was an amazing idea. But anyway, back to your question. Mm-hmm. So first of all, I don't think the process structurally changes based on market cap. And what I mean by that is, I'll explain my process in a second, but I don't think you kind of say, well, this, these are micro caps, so we cut corners. The process should be the same. However, I think where you put a little bit more emphasis, I think, can change. And I'll tell you what I mean. So I have what I call the five-step research process. And very briefly, you know, step one is company quality assessment. Step two is figuring out the key economic variables and reasonable ranges of values for them. Step three is financial modeling. Step four is valuation. And then step five is a behavioral checklist. So within step one, the company quality assessment, which is probably the most difficult, where there's the most art. Because investing is both art and science, and the art isn't how you crank out a DCF. The art is in the inputs and a lot of other things. So within company quality, there is the business, there is the management team, and then there is the balance sheet. So I would say what I do focus a bit differently on in terms of microcaps is, you know, I think the people matter even more than with large businesses because you 
I think you, you always want to, you know, with management teams, you want two things. You want competence and then you want alignment. So I would say alignment matters even more because I think, you know, with a small you know, company, you, uh, microcap, you might have the, you know, basically one or two key guys and then the rest of the folks are just kind of executing the orders, right? You don't necessarily have the same depth sophistication, but you can much easier find an owner operator who has the same skin in the game and might own 10% of the company or 20% of the company with you. So I think in the micro cap a portion of the spectrum, if you find that, that's a very good um, you know, sign uh, to look for. While as in large caps, it's, it's rare, right? You know, certainly there are some situations where people have very meaningful ownership, but it's much more frequent that you have kind of the typical hired hand, you know, the consultant does the compensation, you know, uh, package, the smorgasbord of metrics, blah, blah, blah. I guess one, I guess one place I would push back on the premise of the question yeah. is I do think having some reasonable financial history is important because I guess what I like to say is I'm not in the public market venture capital business, which is if a company is small because it's immature and it has no history of profitability, for me, that's a pass. Like I, unless it's like a net net or there's some asset based value that where the value is from the assets and not from the going concern value of the business. Mm-hmm. I think it's for me, it's too hard. So I, but I do think because there's so many companies, the micro caps, you can afford to pass on the vast majority of them and just look for the ones that have the good history, uh, and that have the decent, at least decent management and have a safe balance sheet where they can withstand adversity. And then wait for a price to value gap, which by the way, like why why would we look at microcaps, right? Part of the reason is obviously they're going to they're more likely to get mispriced, right? Mm-hmm. You don't have 20 analysts following them. You don't have, you know, giant investors, you know, Warren Buffett isn't competing with you in the microcap space, right? So I think because the the mispricings uh, are more frequent and they can be much bigger, I think you should, in poker terminology, play tight. And wait for things to line up rather than to say, well, I'm not going to demand the same you know, characteristics that I would demand in a different business. Right. So, I mean, well, I mean, that's that's microcaps in a nutshell, you know, is that uh, it's it's a lot of investors trying to take advantage of the inefficiencies in the market. You know, and it sounds like you've you're you're on that same mindset. That's right. So then, uh, you know, an- another question I had then is, you know, um, when, once you found a potential new investment, you know, what what are yours and, and the firm's investment process? You know, what do you do from there? Yeah, so I think that I I really do put it through that five step research process, mm-hmm. and for me, it starts with reading. So mm-hmm. I'm a big believer in understanding both not just the financial history in terms of the numbers, but what was the context. So I download all the possible annual letters and I read them and I'm looking for a few things. First of all, I'm looking to for the narrative for what happened with the business's profitability over time. But also I'm kind of trying to judge the management through the way they communicate. I wrote an article a few months ago on some of the best CEO letters out there and they really stand out. When, a good, when you see a good letter, it's a partner writing to a partner explaining what happened, you know, the good and the bad, how does that fit with the plan and the strategy, and how they, the CEO, your partner, the operating partner in this case, is handling this, these developments to try to create as much value for uh, all the shareholders as possible. When you read a typical letter, what you see is a lot of self-promotion, a lot of kind of cookie-cutter letters that are, you know, spitting out numbers that almost obfuscate what's happening mm-hmm. as opposed to illuminate. And they certainly withhold the negative way too much and focus on the positive way too much. So I think by studying the letters first, you get a sense of both the management team and how they think about you. Or do they think about you kind of as this annoying shareholder they have to write to and find the IR department will help them come up with a form letter and they'll customize here and there? Or do they really treat this as a partnership? And also you get the context for the history because you know, financial analysis is not just taking a history, let's say 10 or 20 years or five or whatever, and saying, well, it, it did X dollars in earnings, therefore it's going to do it again. It's a starting point for thinking, okay, this is the, the company had this cash flow stream historically. 
here's why. Now let's think about what is or isn't changing going forward. What are some structural drivers that might be different over the next 10 years? And so that's kind of how you form, start to form your opinions. And then I mentioned the company quality um, assessment. I really spent a lot of time there, which by the way, this already presupposes that I it passed my initial kind of screen that I want to do work at all. Most companies I look at, they're not particularly interesting to me as businesses, so I pass. Uh, or the valuation is, you know, not particularly attractive, so maybe I put it on the back burner. But let's say there is, it's a promising enough business, and there's potential for it to be mispriced. So I think, to me, I want to assess, you know, the, the industry structurally, and I like to think of it as an analogy. So think about a, a ship on a body of water, and you have a crew. So you have how turbulent is the body of water? Mm-hmm. So is it really calm, like a nice quiet lake, or is it kind of like a very turbulent sea? Then you have how good is the ship, and then you have how good is the is the crew, right? So the the body of water is the industry, right? And some industries just have structural dynamics that almost nobody can earn an excess return over a cycle, no matter how good they are. Other industries, almost everyone does well, right? It's important to know which one you're at. And I think the four or five forces framework is very appropriate as a starting point, probably with some modifications. Um, to uh, actually go and make that assessment. Mm-hmm. Then I think really important is what is the company's sustainable competitive advantage? And the reason it's important is not because it helps generate high returns, but because I think it determines how predictable the business is. So if you have a business that doesn't have a sustainable competitive advantage, it's really at the mercy of external factors. And to give you an example, one of the first companies I covered, I thought that mid-cycle cash flow and earnings per share. It was a small cap company um, when I was an analyst at Fidelity. I thought it was $2.50, give or take, over at the mid-cycle point. And I bought the stock at um, so, uh, at around $20, thinking, well, you know, it should, it's kind of an average business. I multiply 15 times 250, I get around 40. I'm buying it for close to half. That's my margin of safety. Mm-hmm. And then 10 years later, I look back. I was no longer following this company. And by the way, I thought if I were wrong, maybe instead of 250, it would be two or 150. Well, it was 25 cents. <laughs> That's humbling, right? And the, the key thing I missed was there was really no sustainable competitive advantage. They were in a weak portion of the value chain where they were stuck between large, you know, suppliers and large, powerful customers. And when the dislocation came, the economics flowed to other parts of the value chain. So I think thinking about that. While it's hard and hard to reduce to a formula, I think it's very important. So I think that's important. I think the balance sheet is probably the easiest to analyze, but I think a lot of people are too focused on the income statement nowadays. And I think it's important to look at all three statements, but particularly asking yourself, can this balance sheet withstand adversity? Meaning if an economic downturn comes or a company has just loses some market share or product cycle fails, are they going to be a forced seller of equity? Are they going to dilute the intrinsic value per share and be a distressed uh, issuer? Or do they have the wherewithal to you know, survive that you know, period of distress without diluting you? So I think that's pretty important. So it's company uh, quality in, in terms of business and sustainable competitive advantage. It's management quality in terms of competence and alignment. And it's the balance sheet in terms of ability to withstand adversity. Though That's really how I start. And then now, the, the modeling and the analyzing key economic variables and valuations, happy to walk through that if you want, but I would say that almost flows out of that first step. If you get the first step wrong, nothing will save you. You, know? yeah. you can do the best DCFs in the world, but if you get the business wrong or the, or the people are crooks, you know, it's just not going to help you. Right. Well, I would, but the, but I, you know, the, the main reason I brought you on and uh, that, that I thought was pretty interesting is actually your other firm's publication that you have, uh, the behavioral value investor, you know, so for those who may not know what that is and we'll, we'll get more into it in a minute, but you know, what, what is this publication about? Sure. So I'm a big believer that, you know, investing is difficult, not because just of the analytical difficulties, but because of the behavioral biases that we all have. And Buffett is famous for saying that, you know, you need sufficient intelligence, but you really need to have the right temperament. And I think that's right. But also, in addition to temperament, we all have biases. 
Well, except for me. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we all have biases, right? And one of them is overconfidence, right? You know, that's where <laughs> you you guys listening on the uh, on the podcast probably saying, well, of course we all have biases, but not me. Or my biases are pretty small. You know, I'm okay. Right. Maybe, but chances are that's that's a bias in and of itself. Right. So how do you how do you you know fight these biases? You can't eliminate them, by the way. Uh, there's been studies, and Danny Kahneman's talked about this in numerous interviews, that just knowing that you're biased doesn't make you less biased. So I'm a big believer in combining ideas from behavioral finance, creating checklists, and thinking through and uh, you know rigorous processes to minimize these biases. You know, so what might be an example might be, you know, being at least aware of the base rate probabilities of success of a certain endeavor. So let's say you're buying a high PE stock. That doesn't mean that it's can be undervalued, it could to totally be undervalued, but just starting from the uh, point of view that on average, high P stocks do worse in the market should at least give you some you know, pause to at least be a little bit more rigorous. Or let's say, you know, knowing that you might be victim to confirmation bias where you already own something, you have a thesis, and now you're ignoring disconfirming evidence might should at least cause you to seek out this confirming evidence. For instance, I had a company that blew up last year. There was a short thesis out there. I actually made a point of trying through a mutual acquaintance uh, connect with a short seller and we had a very helpful call. You know, I gave him my perspective, but that wasn't why I was calling him. It was really, I wanted the strongest possible negative thesis on my holding to help debias me because what if they were right and I'm wrong? I don't want to assume that I'm right just because I would like to be right. So mm -hmm. behavioral value investor, the idea there is to marry the discipline of value investing and you know, these things we talked about, such as margin of safety, intrinsic value, long-term time horizon, with the premise that even with those tools, we're going to be fallible, we're going to make mistakes. The way we can make fewer mistakes is be aware of behavioral biases and then systematically try to create behavioral defenses and build those into our processes. So it's almost like value investing meets uh, human fallibility. <laughs> That's right. And it's not just, I mean, I'm a big, so I teach uh, a value investing seminar to business school students here in Boston. And I always, when I teach them, I always tell them the main thing you want to do is you want to customize. When you're at a certain level, when you're at a high enough level, you want to customize an investment approach to your own strengths and weaknesses. And so the same thing is with behavioral biases. You have to observe where are you systematically more prone to mistakes and then create checklists or processes or kind of circuit breakers to minimize the chances. For instance, I've systematically sold too early most of the time, but not always. And so recently I've been thinking like, why, why am I doing this? Well, you know, and it turns out that there are two types, uh, there are two types of selling mistakes I made. The first, so basically you have a situation where let's say this, thesis is working out and now the price to value gap is closing and I have a certain cutoff where I start to sell the stock it's systematic blah 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 but here's the problem I've systematically sold things too early when the fundamentals were going well but it was purely based on the valuation so that's not an invitation to not be disciplined but so I started thinking what's happening and I think what's happening is I am too anchored to my initial value so I'm not processing new information dynamically enough, and I'm just so relieved that something I bought for 60 is now the 100 that I sell, and I look back three years later, I could have legitimately, not just you know, ex post ante uh, because of the outcome, but legitimately based on information available at the time, held for 130 or 140. That's a huge difference, right? Because you know, you're not gonna have, not everything is gonna be a winner, right? So if you consistently cut your uh, winners short, inappropriately that's a big leak in terms of process so and that, that's to me there was an aha moment this is anchoring and so now i've built in a process where i use something called the thesis tracker where for every quarter i put in you know a color bright green to bright red of how well is the thesis tracking as objectively as possible meaning does the information in the quarter support or reject or is neutral vis-a-vis my long-term base case thesis. And what I do with that then is, let's say the price to value gap closed, but there were two or three green quarters in a row, then rather than blindly sell, I re-underwrite the business. And the idea there by inserting that step is that 
well, I know I'm prone to anchoring. I know that, you know, this company has been doing better than my base case based on my own thesis tracker. Rather than blindly sell because now price to value is close to 100, let's look at it again in light of this new information to make sure that that $100 of value shouldn't be 110, 120, 130 or something like that. So that's an example. But it also can be useful for non-professionals. Part of my goal, to be honest, is I think there's so much bad advice out there. People trying to sell you Bitcoin or whatever or some you know scam product where they're going to make a lot of money off of you. That my goal was to write articles that would be helpful to the general public. I never talk about specific investments because I don't think it's appropriate or helpful to give kind of stock ideas to the masses because I think they can do more harm than good. But to talk about concepts where people, even if they're using index funds or something like that, can still make better decisions. So my next question then, you know, when it comes to behavioral biases, because I think, you know, we're not going to be able to uh, cover all of the different biases, but I think it would be good maybe for the, the lay investor to know, you know, what, what are some of these, you mentioned a few, you know, like confirmation bias and whatnot, you know, but maybe what are some of these behavioral biases that come up in the investing world? And then maybe in your expert opinion, you know, what are some of the questions you should be asking yourself if you happen to have one of these biases as an investor? Right. So I think, you know, so I, I actually wrote an article to this effect, but I think that I'll give you a brief overview and I'll talk about kind of one of my kind of generic checklists that I mm -hmm. use as a starting point. Mm -hmm. So overconfidence is certainly one. Um, so I think that it pairs very well with base rate neglect because how does how does it work? Well, let's say another example. We know that the majority of all large acquisitions fail to add value, right? So that's the base rate. The base rate is if one of your companies just announced a large deal, odds are based on just the base rate that it's value destructive. But we are overconfident, so we analyze and say, ah, well, that's the base rate, but I, Gary, figured out that this it's okay this time, right? So that's something that, uh, you know, it's pretty common that's happening. We talked about anchoring. Another one I would mention is recency bias. And I think that it's very prevalent in the sense that we as investors give too much weight to recent events as far as over extrapolating them into the future. So if a company, uh, you know, let's use a pharma company example. When the pharma company announces that a key drug trial failed, the typical Wall Street reaction is to assume the whole pipeline is terrible. And when a company announces a pretty big success, the rest of the, you know, these guys are really smart, you know, genius R&D people, and the rest of the pipeline is very valuable. So there's the, there's this overreaction. So again, that's part, part of the reason the long-term time horizon helps, so you can zoom out and process information in its proper context. Um, other things that you, know, uh, you should keep an eye out for is things like social proof. For instance, as value investors, a lot of times we see, well, Seth Klarman bought this company, must be good. But even that, that that's, that's a bias, right? That's mm -hmm. a social proof, and you have to be careful. You know, now, Seth Klarman buying an investment probably means he has a positive base rate, so there's maybe some information there, but to go and blindly copy that, I think, is a mistake. Another, you know, example is, uh, you know, commitment, you know, bias, right? So part of the reason I try to minimize talking about specific investments is, let's say I go out and I tell you stock XYZ is amazing, you know, this is why I own it, you know, it's better than sliced bread, you know, here you go. And let's say next quarter or the following quarter, negative information comes. Do you think I'm going to be equally likely to be honest with myself about the future prospects of this business taking into account the new information? Probably not as objective as I would be if I had not publicly just announced to the world how amazing this company is, right? So things like that. Uh, I think there's, and there's many of them. There are certainly resources, and I have links on my site to some of them, uh, where you can go ahead and, you know, come up with, uh, you know, the common biases. The problem, the, the goal isn't to categorize a hundred biases, and there really are that. Many. Right, of the course. The goal is to systematically defend. So, I, I have this what I call the skeptics checklist, and so here are some questions that I use in real life to actually go through. So, first one is, do I understand this business well enough to approximately estimate its key economic characteristics in five to ten years? We talked about that. Um, next one is, how strong is the company's competitive advantage, and even by the way, recent insight, 
maybe even as important, more important, uh, or at least as important, is, is it getting stronger or weaker? A big source of my mistakes has been companies that used to have good competitive advantage, but where it's either getting weaker or it's gone, but I'm looking backwards and I'm thinking it's still there. Um, another good question is, what would it take for this company to be out of business in 10 years? Because again, this actually fights a lot of the biases because we we kind of start falling in love with investment. We do some work. Maybe we meet the management. Now we feel even better. They told us all this good stuff that's going to happen to the company. Um, and so we're very biased towards thinking about positive developments. So force yourself to think about negative. What would it take for the business to be gone? Uh, and the corollary to that is what would it take for the business to have their profits below the current level in five years? Uh, about 15 years ago at the Berkshire Hathaway meeting, Buffett said, you know, the reason that the average sell-side earnings growth estimate is so high at 12%, while we know the reality is going to be somewhere close to GDP, is because nobody ever models five-year earning decline. Now, like if you look at all, like almost no company, you know, unless they're already like maybe Sears or something like on the verge of bankruptcy, you know, barring that, for large companies, people don't forecast that they're going to learn earn less than they're currently earning. Um, another good one is how much time and capital will it take for someone, uh, such as a new competitor or a new entrant, to turn this into an economically unattractive business? Uh, and there are a bunch of others. I don't want to bore you. You know, the, uh, the article has a bunch of others, but I think you want to be systematic. You want to kind of go through this checklist, and then for you should customize this to your own tendencies. Like I have a friend who doesn't sell early. He's really good at that, but he changes his mind too much. Like that's what he, according to him. I mean, that's not my judgment. He says, you know, Gary, you have this problem with selling too early. I sell early. I sell just fine. Thank you very much. But I, uh, you know, frequently change my mind. That's a strength when reacting to new developments. But I can also get shaken out of my thesis a bit too much. So now you might want to build a set of check a checklist. No, for that, right? So I think it's not about using one generic checklist. It's about starting with good, you know, questions to uh, and good defenses against biases, and then understanding yourself, understanding how you make decisions, mm -hmm. and then coming up with a checklist that's most effective for you. Mm -hmm. No, you. It's really interesting what you're talking about in the sense that uh, you know, it, it's all about developing your process. It's one thing to recognize that this is how you tend to even invest or this is how you look at these businesses you know but it but what's more important is well what are you going to do about it you know what you're just going to keep making the same mistakes or are you going to or are you going to put something in place so that you can check yourself you know that's right so you know i i want to i want to move on to you know some one of my favorite questions to ask because i think you know look, you know look we could we could go on for hours i feel like uh, talking about different behavioral biases and and uh, and even the psychology of an investor, uh, but I, I I would love to direct my audience uh, to go and, and read some of these articles that are on uh, both the behavior on behavior value investor, right? Not not on uh, on silver ring. Correct. Right? Yeah. So it's, so it's uh, behavioralvalueinvestor.com. You can check them out there under insights. They're probably at twenty or so different ones. So gotcha. Check them out. Cool. So then, so my next question then is, you know, what 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 would you say is an investing experience that has guided uh, your current investing thesis the most? Well, I think that I had this mid-career stock recommendation. I was analyzing a large telecom company that I was recommending, and I pretty much made every single mistake you can think of. Uh, and by the way, this is not like, okay, well, it's my second year. It wasn't my second year. It was like seven or eight years into it. So I should have known better. It was, you know, the company just did a large acquisition. Check. By check, I mean that's a, red flag, a yellow flag at least, right? Mm -hmm. um, the company was a number three competitor in the industry and wasn't particularly, you know, attractive in terms of past historical returns. Yeah. Check. That's a, that's a negative base rate thing, right? Mm -hmm. It was a very capital intensive business. Check. It was a management team that was a bit self-promotional, and they told I met with them, and they told me, "Oh, yeah, you know, big acquisition. Yeah, for mere mortals, it would be difficult to integrate, but we're awesome, and we're gonna do it. Don't worry, don't you worry." And of course, I felt, you know, I felt a little bit more comfortable after hearing that check, you know. 
<laughs> you know, so and I did not look for disconfirming evidence. Then on top of that, rather than thinking about these things at a high level qualitatively first, I proceeded to create a giant DCF model where I convinced myself that based on this intricate DCF analysis, the stock is really undervalued. Um, and then just to top it off, I, I made sure to actually make an embarrassing Excel error. Like I really, it almost never happens, but it happened to me that time. I actually linked to the wrong cell and that gave me an extra 20% boost in value. Um, so, you know, again, this, these are not things that you know, I would, you know, like I probably shouldn't be discussing in a call, but you know what? It a, it happened. B, I think that, you know, if you handle these situations appropriately, you should come out stronger on the other side. Now, by the way, the first question that was part of a team at that point is like, so you found this accelerator, what do you do? Your mind tells you, well, I can fix the error, but I can probably find 20% extra value uh, if I tweak these other, these other variables, right? You know, there's this voice in the back of your head that you don't want to go and tell, you know, all your colleagues that you just linked to the wrong cell, but you have to do that. Like, you have to do that for yourself. You also have to do it to set an example to more junior colleagues about intellectual honesty and how you want them to behave because you don't want people hiding things like that from you, right? You also don't want to start tweaking other assumptions to make up for the mistake. So, you know, I did the right thing, but, you know, it wasn't pleasant. But I think the bigger conclusion wasn't don't make accelerators, of course. You know, that, that doesn't need the lesson. It was, you know, I kind of got into the weeds. I started believing my own conclusions way too much about the minutiae of numbers and, you know, forecasts, rather than just doing a basic checklist of, is this a decent business? You know, are there things going on that are likely to have a very negative base rate implication on value? Um, should I even be, like, going deeper into this business? So I probably, today, if I get a business like that, I would just say, thanks, but no thanks. Right. Uh, you know, there's just too many things that don't fit. And, you know, at year 18 in my career, I just, or almost 19, I've learned the lesson that, you don't have to dance with all the girls, you know. <laughs> you, you can just say politely, "Hey, you're a wonderful company. I'm sure other people will love you, but I'm gonna move on." <laughs> and right. I think that that was the lesson for me. But it was not a fun way to learn. And it was, I think, uh, we bought the stock at 15, and uh, it it's been uh, the last I looked, it was below five. You know? <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. Well, you know what's interesting is that you know there's uh, while you have your. It, it, you know, we earlier talked about, you know, how uh, behavioral behavioral value investors more of like the value investing, you know, married with uh, human fallibility. You know, it, what's interesting is that it's almost that, you know, that simple value investing process that you've done a thousand times maybe at that point, you know, and that's where the human error was, you know, it almost forced you to really delve deeper into, well, you know, let's say just in case this does happen. What can I do as my check against perhaps faulty math, right? Yeah, and that, by the way, it's simple sanity checks. Like right now, yeah. I know. So I still use a DCF. I know some people hate it because it's garbage in, garbage out. But my counter argument to that is, well, you know, you can hit, hit your finger if you use a nail, a hammer to hammer in a nail. But that doesn't mean the screwdriver is the best tool for hammering a nail. That means you should learn how to use the hammer, um, or get someone else to do it for you if you can't, which would be my case in the case of a hammer. Mm -hmm. But I use a lot more kind of cross checks, such as what are private market transactions like? What does this valuation imply in terms of you know kind of some price to normalize earnings or uh, EV to EBITDA uh, kind of multiple? To make sure that there's no red flags. And by the way, had I done that for this company I just uh, talked about as an example of a mistake, it would have been like, why is this not so hot business valued at 20 something times earnings? That, that's not growing very much. Like, what's going on? That would have clued me into there's some mistake somewhere. Either my assumptions are too aggressive or there's, or there's an actual accelerator. So it's interesting because I've worked, I've mentored a number of aspiring value investors and occasionally, I get someone like that who builds these intricate 300 line models and I kind of empathize with them because I've been there and they think value investing is about being really good at valuing things. It's actually not. Valuation is really straightforward. It's really it's being a really good business analyst, knowing your comfort zone, knowing your biases and waiting for the easy you know, pitches, not about being able to outsmart someone on line 293 of a model. Mm -hmm. Nope, I can I, I completely agree with that.
You know, so my next question then is, uh, you know, what, what advice do you have for new investors? Yeah, so I think it depends on what, you know, how someone's approaching it. I mean, if you take new investor as someone, they decide that they're going to be a stock analyst or a stock investor directly into stocks, you know, I'll answer that in a second. But I think before, before you even get to that point, from people who are doing it for themselves, right? Not, it's not like they got a job as a, you know, equity analyst, but they're just, you know, investors themselves. I would say, like, be honest with yourself is, do you have the time, the temperament, and the process to do this right? And I think it's not just the time. It's, you know, can you actually, I've seen investors who have good process, but they fall apart. I have a friend who will rename, remain nameless, but he is super smart, knows companies really well, but when things go against them, he, I get these texts like, oh my God, what do I do now? You know, stock is down. And like, I don't know what to do. I'm like, what do you mean? You don't know. You you did the analysis. You have your value range. Do that. Whatever your process tells you to do. But it's very hard for him to do that, right? right. It's just he's wired a certain way. So I think knowing yourself, that about yourself, might suggest that, hey, maybe Vanguard 500 uh, or some other broad index fund might be something to consider if that's you. Um, but let's say you decided to... Um, pursue this and you love it or and you're good at it and you think you have the temperament i i, I wrote an article recently about uh, the best investing books that can make you a good investor and i use it to teach my value investing seminar and i think unfortunately it's a long path it's not like well you read the intelligent investor on the beach it's a short book and you come out on the other side you're an awesome investor it's not doesn't work that way so i i usually start my students with security analysis uh we go through it part by part and they're the bigger picture is you're trying to do three things. You're trying to understand what the investor you're studying did. Then you're trying to apply. And then you're trying to customize your own strengths and weaknesses. And the way I have mentored people is let's combine thinking from first principles with studying from the masters. And let's use what we learn from the masters, whether it's Ben Graham or Phil Fisher or Warren Buffett or you know, Peter Lynch or whoever. Let's combine, combine that, figure out what their style is and why it works for them, and let's start thinking about how do we build a style for you that's going to play to your strengths and weaknesses. So if I am analytical. I don't, you know, I, I meet sometimes great investors who are very qualitative, and I respect that and I admire that from afar, but I know it can, it can never be me. I'm, I'm an MIT guy, I'm an ex-engineer, I need process and structure to my investment uh, process. But someone else might look at it and say, this is a bunch of, you know, over precise stuff. You know, I'm just gonna do it very big picture. Yeah. So figure that out, but then use as heuristics, use as a guide what's worked for other investment grades because you don't wanna do complete trial and error. One of the challenges in learning to be a good investor is that the feedback loop is so long, mm -hmm. right? So when you learn how hammer and nails, you swing, and if you miss, your finger tells you you did it wrong, <laughs> and uh, you know you see that the nail didn't go in. But investing, you swing, and you have to wait sometimes a number of years to get the feedback of whether you're right or not. And I think you tr you're trying to use the studying of these investment processes by investment masters to shorten that learning cycle, if that makes sense. Yep. So, so then, you know, Gary, as we uh, round out the interview here, uh, where can my audience go and find more information about you and, uh, and uh, everything they want to know about Behavioral Value Investor as well as Silver Ring Value Partners? Sure. So I would, uh, I would tell people to check out BehavioralValueInvestor.com. Uh, it also links to my company uh, site, Silver Ring Value Partners. But I would say the Behavioral Value Investor has much more rich content to actually help you guys make better decisions. Also, I recently launched a YouTube channel, so it's under my name. So if you just search for Gary Mishuris, uh, where I'm going to regularly post videos on these very topics, so value investing and behavioral finance and using them to make better investing decisions. So check that out. And uh, yeah, I'm, you can always uh, send me an email. It's just Gary at SilverRingValuePartners.com. Always happy to hear from you. Well, Gary, thank you so much for joining me today. This was really such an, uh, an insightful interview and, uh, you know, look forward to uh, meeting you in person soon. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Really appreciate you having me. Thank you, Gary. Thank you all for tuning in to the Planet Microcap podcast. And thank you, Gary, again, for coming on to the program. You can access the podcast by going on to stocknewsnow.com under podcast. Go to podbean.com, iTunes, Stitcher, 
or Spotify and search Planet Microcap Podcast. Stay tuned for the next Planet Microcap Podcast where we'll have our next guest to discuss all things microcap. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, please send an email to info at snnwire.com. I'd love to hear from all of you. This podcast has been brought to you by SNN Incorporated, publishers of stocknewsnow.com, the official microcap news source, and the Microcap Review Magazine. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you again for joining me on the Planet Microcap Podcast. Have a great week, everyone.